You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. So this is the big day for us. We've been a long time thinking about this, talking, organizing, hoping that we'll be able to give, do justice, I suppose, yeah. to the massive subject of gender. What are your thoughts? For sure. I mean, it is a big, big subject. It is a complicated one. And I think, you know, we are um, ready to take on the challenge. And we've really thought also about how to present this information to the audience. So we hope that our audience will be patient with us, but we have um, decided to start with two very important concepts that people need to understand in order to wrap their heads around what is this gender thing. And those concepts are gender identity versus gender dysphoria. Yeah. And the big thing, you know, there's been so much conflict and so much controversy and distress. And I often think of that lovely kind of um, advice that one should try and build a golden bridge between two camps. Mm. And it would be great that if we if we could with this gender podcast on some level start a bringing together, because it seems like we are we're like angels dancing on the head of a pin sometimes around gender. And it would be great if we could just expand ourselves and expand the audience so that actually we start bringing it together. So there's two big, two big theories, really. There's gender identity theory and there is people who believe gender dysphoria is a condition Mm -hmm. And people develop it for a vast number of reasons you can develop gender dysphoria. And this seems to be the nub of the issue. Would it be too much to say that? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's about right, because the gender identity theory seems to fill in the gaps that can be a little bit harsh with the gender dysphoria idea, which is very clinical. It can be sometimes dismissive, which I think is a problem sometimes with psychiatric diagnosis. But I hope today we can at least flush these two out, explain what they are, and then also discuss in an honest way that there are some real contradictions here that are important for people to understand. And we want to give a little bit of um, a spotlight to each of these. So where should we start? Shall we talk a little bit about what gender identity is, according to the, the individuals who really buy into this theory. Yeah, I think we should. I think we should give a good exploration into what is gender identity, the concept of it, where it's going, and why people who believe in gender identity almost cannot believe in gender dysphoria. Certainly, it's, it's, it's kind, it does feel like you're either one or the other. Mm-hmm. And it feels very difficult when you're speaking with somebody if they if they believe in identity and you believe in dysphoria it's already it feels like catholics and muslims talking and it's like mm-hmm. oh god where, where, <laughs> where are we going to go wrong here but wouldn't it be lovely if we actually give it a good a good genuine honest kind of non-cynical kind of flushing out like you said so what's your what's your read What's your read of gender identity? <laughs> well, the way I understand gender identity is that that every person has a kind of innate sense of where they feel comfortable on the spectrum of, I guess I, I want to say gender because gender is, you know, the societal expectations. It's perhaps something about masculinity and femininity and that every single person will feel like they are most comfortable somewhere along that spectrum. Now, you know, I think the idea of masculinity and femininity is very much something that is innate for people. And as opposed to being overly focused on the outward appearance, for example, clothing, hairstyles, I do think that we all exude some kind of a natural sense of femininity or masculinity that doesn't necessarily have to do with our biological sex. I mean, I think it's a way of being, it's a way of carrying oneself. It's perhaps something about your mannerisms, your interests, and um, the way one 
kind of comports him or herself. I do think we have a spectrum of masculinity and femininity. So in that regard, I think uh, I can understand why gender identity has become such a powerful concept in our culture. I mean, what do you yeah. what do you think, Stella? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I started reading up around gender. I like to always look at the origin of these things. And I started reading around gender identity theory and where it came from. And then I start, realized that there was a concept of the anti-gender movement. Hmm. This was very much based around pretty much around the Catholic Church. I was born a Catholic. I don't I don't believe in God now, but the Catholic Church were created, as far as I could see, or certainly pushed and promoted an anti-gender movement because they felt that there's just, there's male and there's female and, you know, you're one or the other and your gender is your biological sex and there you go. Mm. You know, shut up and put up. And that does feel very restrictive. Mm. And certainly gender identity theory are the antithesis of that. They're kind of saying, you've got your identity. It could be anything. And I'd wonder, actually, would some people agree with you when you say there's always something masculine or feminine? I wonder, would some, I don't know, but would some gender identity theorists, would they say, oh, no, oh, no, I've neither masculine nor feminine. I have something else. Because mm-hmm. we're thinking of the binary immediately by saying masculine or feminine. Mm-hmm. Well, non-binary is saying, I'm out. I'm I'm in and I is that right? Is that my 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 correct thinking of that? You know, I, I think that's hard to say. I can't speak for anybody else who has kind of defined their identity in a certain way, but I do see a lot of people who would like to opt out of the whole thing. And and I guess what I'm saying is that in my estimation, it's something beyond just the very stereotypical elements that we think of. It's it's not just the G.I. Joe on one end and the princess on the other. I think Uh, masculinity and femininity perhaps in my view represent you know hard and soft elements of being that is a much more abstracted way of saying that but I'd like to think outside the box a little bit beyond pink and blue and think you know are there perhaps hard and soft elements that every person must draw upon depending on the circumstance or situation and I wonder you know in, in this in this way Is that what non-binary is really a reference to, trying to integrate various aspects of the person's uh, mannerisms or personality or self? Um, And then non-binary has just become this culturally sanctioned term that I think, again, reduces everything down to masculine G.I. Joe and feminine Barbie. And, And I think there might be something that is being hinted at that goes beyond the very stereotypical ideas of masculine and feminine that people are trying to tap into with the question of identity. Yeah, people have been trying to, well, not trying to, people have been playing with their gender for a long time. And I think, I often think the 80s was almost the pinnacle, 1980s, of they really were playful with their Mm -hmm. gender. It was fun and it was celebratory and it was a really, a celebration of that kind of messing around with gender. So a boy would wear elaborate makeup. And mm-hmm. and I, I thought that was really interesting. And it felt very progressive at the time. And so when I see, personally, when I see people who are gender playful, I like it. Mm-hmm. Even, even if it goes against my old-fashioned regressive views, <laughs> I just still think, yeah, I, I love people who kind of take something and turn it on its head. And the, the gender movement has really done that. And they'll say, yeah, here's a, here's a woman with, with a beard and with a dress and with high heels. And you're going, oh, you're playing with all my head here. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a real, there's a real kernel of, of um, creativity in that mm-hmm. that could be really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think maybe one day it might be. I wonder what the 2030s will bring us for gender. Because there's so many genders now. I don't know. I haven't kept, have you got the count of how many genders there is at the moment? Well, I, I imagine, I mean, I think as we flesh out this idea, we will be able to explore why this number seems to be so hard to pin down. Um, yeah. I, I want to offer, I guess, a kind of counterpoint. Let's Let's take a look. 
I think you're right that there's a lot of creativity being expressed here. However, there's still something very literal about it, isn't there? So rather than in in the 70s or 80s where individuals really played with appearance, played with mannerisms, played with their style, um, I think today people are playing much more with definitions and labels, and yeah. that seems to be people's fixation. So, so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about the idea of an innate sense of identity and where, where there might be some contradictions there. Where does this idea get sticky? Because I, I see several. That's the key point, because people who believe in gender identity theory believe that within you somewhere there is a gender essence. It's mm-hmm. somewhere within you. It's almost like um, a soul. And that soul could be pink, it could be blue, it could be purple, it could be yellow. Whatever that yellow might represent could be, and then they play with the language around that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this idea that there's something within me that you can't actually touch. That if mm. you open me up, you wouldn't be able to find my gender. If you took off all my clothes, you wouldn't be able to find my le- gender. You can't find my gender anywhere within my body, even if you you literally opened my body. Mm. You, you, you cannot find it. it. It isn't there. It's, it's a feeling yeah. inside me. Yeah. Very much like a religious belief of I have a soul. And I, I grew up in Catholic Ireland. And we were always told, you know, we had a soul and that the, the I don't know if you remember, but we had the, the Father, Son and the Holy Ghost and they were called the Holy Trinity. Mm-hmm. And three were one and one were three. And my head used to just Below. It's like, how's one, three and three, one? Yeah. I don't get it. I don't get it. And, <laughs> and this is the type of beliefs that I find I, I start kind of losing the thread of when I'm told mm. about gender. It's like, yes, it's within you. It's innate. Nobody can find it. And it is um, fluid. It can mm-hmm. change. And that's where I would invite you to come in. Sort me outside. <laughs> Well, I mean, what came up for me is the idea of maybe maybe a holy trinity of gender. Like I'm a man, I'm a woman, and I'm neither, you know? And, and it's equally mysterious and it's equally seductive because it really transcends the realm of the observable and the objective. And I think with all beliefs, people really crave something that can take them beyond the, the mundane, the everyday the quote, you know, they say the boxes of gender. So um, I think, you know, the idea that there's this fluid gender is really interesting too, because again, it seems to me to be pointing at something more like mood, perhaps Uh, something like, you know, your level of energy on a particular day. Does it have something to do with your Um, sexual energy that day? Does it have something to do with your level of aggression or passivity? I mean, I get very curious about what is implied in saying that you have a fluid gender identity, because we can use the, I guess, textbook definition and say, well, some days I feel masculine and some days I feel feminine. And I, I, again, would be really curious to try and understand what that means. What what does it mean? Because I, I find it difficult to understand and I really want to give it, I want to do it justice. I love new theories. I love new ways of looking at things. And I love the concept of we each have an expression and we should give respect to the expression and uh, develop the expression. Yeah, I love all that. So gender expression, I'm with all the way. Mm-hmm. It's gender identity that I, I start to lose my footing with. And then when it's fluid, like I know there have been lots of different people who are, like you say, there might be Pippa Bunst jumps to mind. She, she's, um, I think she's a woman three days a week and a, a man the rest of the week or something like that, which is, well, wow, an interesting mm-hmm. life. But it's also, um, so how does your, how does your gender identity change like that? How, mm-hmm. how does that actually work? And that's when I start, we're moving into postmodern, we're moving, moving into really, like you said, we're moving into language now. It feels like we're moving into language. That's right. 
I mean, I think Pippa Bunce is an extreme example. That's why perhaps, you know, this case has received some media attention, I think more so in, in Europe than in the US. But, but I would be curious, Stella, do you ever feel like you wake up one day and feel more feminine or masculine? Because I certainly feel I do. I just don't adhere as much to the concept of gender fluidity. But I'm curious, do you feel that way? I'd say, uh, as opposed to waking up, I'd say contexts. I'd say probably when I'm angry, I'm more masculine. Mm. And I'd say when I'm flirting, I'm more feminine. When I'm funny, I'm definitely feminine. I'd, you know what I mean? I'd say this. Mm. I've always presumed I had a strong masculine energy. I had gender dysphoria as a kid, and I've just always thought it was presumed it was but more and more as life goes on like I'm 46 so it's a long long time ago people look at me kind of blankly when I talk about my masculine energy and I'm not so sure I do have one anymore but I always (laughs) presumed I had one I actually always presumed I had way more testosterone than most women because I presumed I had masculine energy now as life goes on I think of warrior chicks and warrior women all through the centuries and I think what am I on about? And is this about softness and hardness mm. and aggression mm-hmm. and power and control? And and is this anything to do with masculine and feminine? Or is these just words we have placed into the masculine and feminine binary? Yeah, that really makes sense to me. Because when you talked about feeling male, when you're feeling more aggressive, m- my initial thought was, you know, is aggression something we have just disallowed for women? Is that not seen as part of the feminine repertoire of emotions we can have? And in that sense, I do, I do become a little bit skeptical of whether or not that's a masculine energy. I think there are these archetypal concepts of the masculine and the feminine as these broader, you know, buckets. But I definitely think that we have associated certain types of behaviors, certain types of attitudes, and certain types of visible characteristics as being more masculine and feminine, where really, I'm more of a proponent that we are all whole human beings. So like you said, in different contexts, we have to be able to access different parts of ourselves in order to get through a situation or to, you know, keep ourselves safe or to secure, you know, some kind of a conversation or a relationship or whatever the case may be. So I am a little bit skeptical if we have confused certain behaviors with masculine and feminine. Whoa, yeah. Why do you feel people might strongly adhere to gender identity theory? What What is the massive attractions, do you think? Well, I'll start by saying I have met, of course, so many people through my practice and, and through my work that have adhered to the theory of gender identity, and that manifests in different ways, right? So I've met individuals who become very, very uh, concerned and fixated on procuring the correct label from others and the right pronouns. And I've met others who believe in gender identity theory, but are much more flexible and keep the locus of control in in a more internal way. So I think it just depends on the individual, but there's something about it to be able to self define in a way that completely bucks the norms in a profound way. I mean, you can buck a norm by, you know, selecting a different religion from your family of origin or by picking a career that people don't expect of you. But to say that you're not even part of the sex binary, which is the most fundamental aspect of human life, that feels very powerful. And, and I, I wonder if there's just an enormous amount of power and perhaps a sense of perceived freedom when people buy into this. What do you think? I, th- I think it's so, uh, it's anarchic, isn't it? And mm. it's, it's very, very interesting. And I think uh, I, there's something incredibly gutsy about it. It's like you have your old you know, 20th century kind of concepts. I have a whole new thing I'm bringing to the show here. And that's, I'm neither male nor female, I'm they. 
I'm I'm not buying into anything that you have previously taught me. It does feel to me very anarchic, but it feels to me like a rejection of complicated society that has become so difficult that it's like I'm out. And people used to say I'm out by by, you know, going, you know, hippies would kind of leave society and go live in the woods and stuff. It feels like that. It feels like a clever way of doing that. Mm-hmm. Because it's like I, I, I can't go and live in the woods. They still have me. I'd still they'd still have you kind of on the grid. You can't get off the grid on the planet these days in a way that you used to be able. So they're kind of rejecting the grid mm-hmm. and creating their own society. Yeah. That's how I see it. Yeah. Do you, do you agree or do you not? I mean, I think I do on a larger philosophical level. You know, if we were to understand this concept in historical context, that's what it seems like. But I'm also aware that like with many human inventions, they can get reduced again to another kind of trap, another kind of grid. You know, I've, I've certainly met individuals who, even though they are very much, um, uh, proponents of the gender identity theory, they're very bought in, they feel equally trapped by, you know, organizations, schools, institutions asking for your pronouns all the time. Because let's say you are a person who's exploring this identity, and you're, you know, you find yourself falling somewhere between fluid and transmasculine. When you are asked to provide your pronouns or say what your preferred name is, you may not be quite sure. I mean, if we have opened the Pandora's box of gender, And we simultaneously demand to know everybody's preferred name and pronouns all the time. It kind of is a bit paradoxical insofar as we're saying, you know, you can fall anywhere along the spectrum, but you also need to be constantly announcing where you are at that moment, even though this is perhaps a private affair that takes time to sort out. So I I find that we are still in a bit of a trap here even if we take gender identity exactly at face value and we give it all of its credit, we still haven't managed it very well because people feel obligated into one of these thousands and thousands. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. There's hundreds. There's hundreds of gender identities. But once you're obligated to announce, you're stuck again. And there's more, there's more that another layer that we have to kind of think about, which is that gender identity to its to its widest, widest extent suggests that babies can can have a gender identity. And I know, like, let's say Diane Aronsoft, Dr. Diane Aronsoft, she would say that, you know, children as young as two can communicate their gender identity and they can do it by maybe opening their baby grows and making a dress out of it or various things with their hair and things like that to make them maybe a boy declare his 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 feminine identity maybe that he might be really a girl and i i have difficulty with that but i also think so that means as soon as you can communicate you can have a gender mm-hmm. but i think but what about before you can communicate do you have a gender then yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. Because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not sure what, what Dr. Diane Aronsaft would say. I'd say she would say, yeah, you do have a gender identity, but you haven't yet communicated. Again, going back to the soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you've, you've got something within you and it's, it's going to come out one way or the other. And then I start thinking, so do you have a gender identity if you live alone, if you're raised with wolves or something? Do you have a gender identity? It, do, does it follow? Does it follow that if you're raised in the woods on your own, do you have a gender identity? Because as far as I can gather with gender identity theory, yes, you do. Mm. Yes, you do. And it will come out. And so I, I kind of get, I get tripped up then because I think if, it, if, it, if a baby can communicate gen, their gender identity and if it's fluid, part of me thinks, could we live in a world where we could all have our genders and we we don't need to medically transition. We could just socially live as we wish with mm-hmm. whatever gender we wish. I don't really understand. Maybe I'm, I'm kind of jumping here and maybe you want to delay it. But part of me, I don't understand why do we have to medicalize the gender 
identity? Why can't the gender identity be something that we celebrate and enjoy, revel in and live? That's one part of it. And the other part of it is the pronouns. <laughs> the pronouns. The pronouns seem to cause so much distress. Yeah. Well, you, you've raised a lot of important points there. I imagine that throughout the course of this podcast, we're going to be touching on a lot of this in, in great depth. But I did want to just take a moment to touch on something you mentioned. You know, you asked about the idea of, of babies having a gender identity, right? So again, if we were to really give shrift to this idea of gender identity and listen to the clinicians who um, have really created uh, the, the societal acceptance of this identity theory, what happens is that it becomes the lens through which we see everything. So then you can interpret, for example, a baby ripping off her onesie as a gendered communication, which is something that Dr. Diane Ehrensaft has said. And then we find ourselves in this slippery slope on which everything that a person does or thinks or says has a gendered element to it. So I, I sometimes say this is kind of like the blob that can engulf everything, because if you take that gendered perspective, all of a sudden, everything means something a little bit different. So whereas a baby, for example, who's hot and fussy and tired now is providing a gendered communication about what that baby's identity is. So I just, I find that I have a lot of reservation about the theory of gender identity precisely because it can become um, just a, a never-ending analysis on everything. And I feel the part of gender identity theory, when now that we're kind of going quite deep into it, it means everything is about gender. And then I think, you know, I don't agree with the anti-gender movement, i.e. you're a man or a woman, go and act like a man or a woman and get over yourself. I don't agree with that. But I do agree with we're so much more than our gender. We, we, we have so many, you, you and I are, you know, women and uh, perhaps I suppose we're female gender or whatever. How, how do you pronounce that? What is it? <laughs> we're, we're, whatever, we're, we're feminine people, I suppose. And I, I think I'm so much, I'm so different to you. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to me than my gender. There's so much more. I would say it's quite small. Right. I, I wouldn't see I wouldn't see it if I was to do a picture of all the things that impact me. I would feel my gender identity really is quite a small part of me. While if I'm going to subscribe to gender identity, it's almost 95% of me. It, it brings everything back to mm -hmm. gender. That's Just right. like we're often accused, and I definitely fall into it, of bringing everything back to psychology. So if my, if my children maybe are <laughs> vomiting, I'm there saying, are you very stressed? <laughs> they look up with a puke-stained face going, no. <laughs> I think I ate something, mommy. And so I bring everything back to psychology, and I would. Yes. And I feel uh, a gender identity theorist will bring everything back to gender. And so they would. Mm -hmm. And would it be better if we lived in a wider world mm -hmm. where there was physical, psychological, there was gender, there was yeah. experience, there was religion, there was so political, so much to us. Yeah. You know, this is why I think specialization is a bit tricky, because when we focus all of our energy into one particular theory or one particular, um, you know, school of thought, then we do begin to see everything through that lens. And I think you're absolutely right, Stella. This happens with everybody. And, you know, I, I am aware that even within the frame of psychology, if you take a child to uh, a gender specialist, you're going to get some information about gender. If you take a child to an autism specialist, you might be more likely to get an autism diagnosis. If you take a child to an attachment theorist, they're going to talk only about attachment. So we're all guilty of this, right? And that's why I tend to be really a proponent of generalists and trying to take a whole person view. Um, 
I think this would be a good time for us, since we've spent a lot of time discussing gender identity. Maybe we can shift over a little bit into gender dysphoria. And, you know, you you asked about gender dysphoria earlier, and you said, you know, why do we have to medicalize the gender identity? Why not everyone just have one? And what, what comes to mind for me is that Gender identity can become quite abstracted and theoretical. Somebody like a Pippa Bunce, for example, seems content with putting on certain clothing and requesting certain pronouns, and perhaps that's satisfying enough for Pippa Bunce. But I think many individuals who start, uh, let's say, fostering a different gender identity internally they want some validation from the outside world. And I've met lots of individuals who know that even if somebody is, quote, you know, respecting their pronouns, they're clocked or read as their biological sex. And I think the truth is, besides all of these abstractions that we're talking about in these theories, we all live in the three-dimensional world. And being able to clock someone's sex is a biologically programmed into us for necessary reasons. So if, for example, I started fostering a male gender identity, I would really have to do a lot to make sure that that internal sense of self was validated by the outside world. And I think that is why we, we see mm-hmm. such a push to medicalize gender identity, because it's not good enough to be purely in theory for most people. I I think you're right for the reason, but I'm not sure if the result actually carries out what the promise is. Because quite often people who get medicalized, you you still clock Mm -hmm. whether they were biologically male or or not. Now, not always. I Mm -hmm. I don't quite agree that you always do, although some people do seem to be believe this but I, I think I think it's it's kind of interesting I, I remember um, Patrick he was he was a very interesting man I've met him a few times really interesting man and he let out a good few YouTube videos he, he, he transitioned and then he detransitioned and he said he felt it was a bricolage as in it was just he was putting on the the, the medicalized clothes mm-hmm. of a woman but it wasn't actually changing him within him. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's very interesting. That's a very mm-hmm. interesting concept. That it's a, it's it's an elaborate way of dressing yourself is to change your to to kind of physically change your being. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's such a good point. Yeah. yeah. And I think we have moved into that because you know I dye my hair, and so many of us do so many kind of physical alterations to ourselves. We're quite used to it. Like fifty mm-hmm. years ago, it was shocking for a woman to dye her hair, mm-hmm. and you know now so many people get different kind of interventions mm-hmm. medically, and we're bringing it to the natural. Well, then if I want to m- masculinize, I can masculinize and. You know, I can do it quite easily with my face, with my with my body, with my shoulders, with testosterone. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable the changes that testosterone in itself can bring to a woman. Mm-hmm. And I think one part of me would love to see the 2030s. I know I'm going on about the 2030s, but this is going to go somewhere. Gender is going somewhere. We're we're in the middle of a process and it's going to emerge. And I I I would love if it merged into a social scenario where people just wear whatever they want and they did whatever they wanted and there was a playfulness brought back into it. But I'm very aware it could go a very different way, which would be a much more lucrative medical way where people change everything about themselves until they get, until their outer suits what their inner imagines should, it should be. Mm-hmm. Because I know if I, if I had been a kid, if I had started playing with how I looked, I would have made myself very, very... I still get a fright when I see myself in the mirror. I still think, <laughs> is that me? <laughs> I, I, just, I don't look like how I presume I should look. I never have particularly felt that I looked like... And I think a lot of people feel like me. Oh, yeah. That the way I look isn't 
really, is that me? Really? You know, when you look in the mirror and you go, mm-hmm. oh, Jeannie, there I am. Of course. That's yeah. what the world sees. And there's me inside. And I feel gender identity theories are going there. They're just saying, well, let's medicalize this. Just Let's just change it around. I know that's going off what you were talking about, but I think that's where it's going. That trying to make the outer look like how you feel inside. Well, you know what, Stella? I don't think you're that far off because I'm aware of something called, you know, I don't know now in hindsight if I've just concocted this this label. We'll look it up later. But I'm aware that there's something called Snapchat dysphoria. Have you heard of this? I think well, I have. Teenagers who use a lot of Snapchat filters on their social media, they will start to construct the ideal self in their mind based on how their filtered Snapchat images look. And so what happens is they show up at uh, plastic surgeons' offices and say, I want to look like this version of myself through a Snapchat filter. So I think you're absolutely right that when we fantasize about an idealized self that is different from how we look, which again, like you mentioned, this is natural. I mean, I think we all can relate to looking in the mirror and going, oh my God, do I look like that? Really? (laughs) (laughs) It happens all the time. But if we allow ourselves to become really fixated on rejecting that three-dimensional real version of ourselves, we can end up going down a road like you described in the 2030s, where we've We've all tweaked and altered our appearance to match some idealized version of ourselves. And I think this is not relegated only to the area of gender, but gender is a very concrete and tangible way that we see this pattern unfolding in our collective uh, relationships with our bodies. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating concept because... Up until, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, we weren't looking at each other so much. There wasn't so many photos. There wasn't Snapchat. It's so conducive to vanity. It brings Mm -hmm. it out. No sooner have you clicked on it and you're looking at yourself. I've never looked at myself more as how much I've looked at myself in the last five years, whether Mm -hmm. it's through different social media, Zoom calls. I just literally did not see myself so much, didn't see my face. I know my face much better that I knew my face five years ago or 10 years ago. It's mm-hmm. phenomenal how much our appearance is now being really, really, really promoted as our identity. Yes. And I would have liked my appearance to be an aside mm-hmm. to my identity. My identity is is what I'm saying and what I'm, what I'm, all, what I'm communicating. That's, that's the real me. And how I look is kind of neither here nor there. Yeah. But that's how I feel. Although I have to think we, 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 we've, we've a lot to get through and we better get something into dysphoria because funnily <laughs> enough, we haven't given much attention to gender dysphoria. So I believe, I, I'll just say my little bit about gender dysphoria to kind of get it out of the way. I hope I don't go on and on about this during these um, episodes. But I believe I had what is often described as gender dysphoria um, as a kid. Now, when I was a kid, it had a different name because there's been an awful lot of different names given to gender dysphoria. And it's only in recent years it's called gender dysphoria. It's been called gender identity dysphoria. It's been called this gender identity disorder, lots of different things. But when I was a kid, from around about the age of three, of three years old to certainly as far back as I can remember, until around about 10 years old, I was very, very unhappy with being a girl. I felt I should be a boy. I knew I'd be better as a boy. And I actually stand by that. I think I would have been better as a boy. I think I would have been probably better as a man. There, is, there, there was power in it that really attracted me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it and felt I belonged to it. And I felt I was in the wrong tribe, really. And that I, I'm going over it with the boys. And I joined the boys with with you know, assertion and power and kind of certainty. And it was a very difficult time. And for often children who have gender dysphoria, they have an easy time of it when they're three, four, five, six, seven, because they're very powerful and they're very certain. And they're, I think they're quite impressive because mm-hmm. adults look at them going, wow, they can take the room. 
they can just tell everybody who they are, what they are, and defy everybody, mm-hmm. defy people. People mm-hmm. six times older than them, they will defy them to, to reject what they are saying is true. Now, there's power in that. And there's something intimidating and shocking and outrageous in that. And I definitely knew that. I knew that was going on and I was perfectly happy with my power. Mm-hmm. With mm-hmm. That. And then somewhere along the way, it got tricky and complex and very dark and very difficult because somewhere along the way, I realized, oh, the adults are kind of humoring me. And I'm, I'm actually kind of making a show of myself because I'm really a girl and I've been declaring I've been a boy. And then I went to a really dark place and I saw, you know, I saw that Louis Theroux um, documentary about transgender kids probably about five years ago or four years ago it was out. And I saw, again, I think it was Dr. Diane Aronsaf, not to be obsessed because there's plenty of other <laughs> um, doctors who, who, who uh, you know, treat trans kids. But um, she said that, you know, they're, they're fine until they hit puberty. And then they, she said they don't tank, but they slope down. And I thought, yeah, I have no doubt they do. And people who believe in gender dysphoria as a condition, and I do believe that the, the condition, it, 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 can, it can fly for as long as you're not really consciously exploring it. When you consciously explore it, mm-hmm. you're faced with a brick wall of reality. I had a vagina, I was going to grow into becoming a woman and I could rage against the gods all I wanted and by God I did. Mm. And I still had to face reality. And it was a hard time. So I always say 10 with very tentatively because I think like between 10 and 12 is when I was like King Lear on the hill. I was, you know, raging at life and it was all wrong. Everything was wrong. My body was wrong. Everything was wrong. Everything was wrong. And the big difference was I was born in 1974. Transitioning was not an option. It wasn't, wasn't a feasible, realistic option. And therefore, on some level, I had a reckoning. And I had to figure out, how are you going to live? What are you going to do? And I went very quiet and tried to crawl my way out of it. And eventually became a woman. Eventually became, well, happy, very happy. I probably would be better as a man, but I don't have dysphoria. And I'm very happy that I've had children. I, funnily enough, love being a, a mother. Mm. There you go. So that's my uh, long-winded version of gender dysphoria. Wow. I mean, I have a lot of questions. Of course, I, I've heard you talk about your experience before, and I'm aware that you are in hindsight, in retrospect, labeling it gender dysphoria. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about how did you conceptualize this experiential thing before you started calling it now as an adult, you started calling it gender dysphoria. What did you call yeah. it before? What did you, how do you understand okay, so it? Let's say when I met people in my twenties, I rarely said what had happened to me as a kid. Cause I thought they won't get it. And they'll say, Oh, you were a tomboy. <laughs> so was I. And I, go, mm, <laughs> I said mm. it once or twice, but I thought oh, I can't have this conversation. And I stopped because it would be, it, it was so asinine for them to say I loved climbing trees with the boys. And I was like, yeah, yeah. I remember girls like you. And I wasn't like that. Right. <laughs> I was so much more hardcore. So I, I don't know if that's really quite answering your question, but I conceptualized it as something very dark and deep and profound that happened to me that I, I wasn't sure what happened, but I knew it was a hell of a lot more extreme than what happened to most people. And most people belittled it, I felt, with their little stories of wearing dungarees and climbing in trees. And I thought mine wasn't, it wasn't fun. It was very dark and it was very definite. Mm -hmm. It felt very definite and very certain. So I didn't have language around it except along the lines. I remember I can just, I've just suddenly had a memory of me saying, you know, something very weird happened to me as a kid. And I'd leave it at that. I just, you know, We've all had our weird, extreme experiences. I knew I'd had something weird and extreme and I didn't talk about it. And then as the trans kind of politics grew and grew in the last 10 years, you know, anybody who knew me very well knew, no, I I communicated. No, no, no. This this was something really intense. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to say, I have to join this because I, I know what they're talking about. I know that certainty. But I don't mm-hmm. think that was answering your question. And no, I, you, I, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
I think what's really striking is that your experience was so profound and it was an existential crisis of who you actually were versus who you were convinced you should be. Yes. And it strikes me so much that the current approach to childhood gender dysphoria, like what Dr. Aaron Saf describes, it really holds a disdain for reality because she says that when puberty hits, that's when things slide in a bad direction. And you're corroborating that insofar as that's when things got very, very dark for you. But you had no option but to stay with reality, mm-hmm. which ultimately healed your existential distress. Yeah. So what do we think of this idea that reality is really the illness in the way gender dysphoria is treated in children today. Reality is what's wrong. How does that make sense from a psychological? It's, it's almost like a psychological inflation where our theories are more valuable than reality itself. Like this psychological theory of identity is somehow better than three dimensional real reality do you see well, that, what I mean? Yes, I think that's such a good point. And that's taken postmodernism to its height or to its, you know, you know what I mean? Don't you give, don't you give me your reality. I, I don't care about reality. I don't mm. care about facts. I, I care about language and what I think and what's inside me. So it feels so post-religion, like we have no religion. And so, my God, I'll give you religion. This, I'll give you the, the, the kind of the pinnacle of belief. Mm. And it's a belief in me. And the me in my mind. The mm. me in my mind. Yeah, totally. And if <sighs> that me is whatever it is, that, that is what I'll, I'll fight to the bitter end. And it feels like the, the massive, we, I, I, I really kind of welcomed in a, a, a non-religious age. And now we're in this world where we're post-religion. I feel so many times when I meet people, clients and things, I think they're lacking. They, they needed the beliefs. The beliefs, they, it, it, it makes them anxious to live in a world without a belief, without a structure, without a framework, without a kind of a definite um, tribe that you can belong to. It's, it's causing so much anxiety. I do want to give a little bit of time to gender dysphoria, but we will yeah. be giving many, many hours, hopefully, <laughs> in the future to it. But I suppose if I had met a psychologist, and I know I was brought to a doctor at one point, and I remember he, him looking out the window, and I knew he was talking to me. It's funny, the way kids are clever. Mm-hmm. I knew he was talking to me, but he was pretending to talk to my mother, and he was saying, I wonder what's wrong with her. And I was looking at him thinking, oh, yeah, yeah. I meant to be listening to this. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was kind of, uh, you know, we could be quite patronized to doctors. But if, if I was brought today, I would think I would be diagnosed with gender dysphoria. And some doctors would be very keen to medicalize my issues. Just like some doctors, when you go to them, they're very keen to prescribe you antidepressants. They're thinking, mm-hmm. what can medicine do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we have solutions to your existential crisis. Well, if I went to a philosopher, they would say, <laughs> let's talk about reality. Mm. And if I went to a psychotherapist like Sasha or myself, they would say, how are you managing your distress? Mm. And there's many different ways. I'm, I'm being obviously reductionist, but there's many different ways. And I feel that parents bring their child haplessly, think it, to their professionals. And there isn't enough lines drawn to, well, if you bring it to that professional, like you said earlier, if you bring it to you know, a, an attachment theory, they're specialists, that's what they're going to talk about. And if you bring it to an autism specialist, that's what they're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the school of thought of the gender professional yeah. to where they're going to go. That's not, I think parents don't know enough about that. Yeah. They're very much yeah. at the whim of the professional that they end up there. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a good point that we are getting a story based on a, a particular narrative that is constructed by that school of thought or that field or that type of profession. So one gender dysphoria 
kind of specialist will say, there's the child, they have gender dysphoria, they need to go down puberty blockers as soon as possible because they will tank or they will certainly slope down emotionally. Mm. They, won't, they won't manage puberty well. And then maybe in the future, they might take cross-sex hormones to continue the medicalization of their distress. Mm-hmm. While somebody else might say, I wonder, can we work with this child so that they learn to cope with the reality of their body so they don't need to medicalize their distress. And a gender identity theorist, I think, would say, this person has a gender and we need to medicalize it as we wish, but certainly affirm this, this, this identity at all points. Mm-hmm. Would that be a fair analysis of... I do. I think that that sounds right. And, and I want to also just describe what is gender dysphoria as a condition for, for anyone who's listening oh, yeah. who may not be familiar So gender dysphoria is a diagnostic label that can be found in the DSM. And it describes the, you know, what we would call an incongruency between the person's internalized perceived gender and their biological sex. Now, it's important to keep in mind, like with all psychiatric diagnoses, that they evolve over a you know period of history there are modifications to these diagnoses and they don't always apply culture to culture so it's not like testing somebody's blood for diabetes that it's very concrete and specific and easy to to discern what is going on biologically all of these psychiatric diagnoses are simply a description of several characteristics And those diagnoses are susceptible to something called diagnostic inflation, in which more and more people can fit the criteria to have that condition. But but as far as we understand it, according to right now at this period in time, gender dysphoria is described as a, a, a persistent desire, insistence, or fantasy about being a different uh, biological sex or gender. And the, the fact is, we know this not only from research literature, but also anecdotally, that lots of people experience some distress around their gender. And there are many different pathways to resolving that incongruency. However, right now, it seems as though the approved treatment for gender dysphoria is affirming the identity, which, again, doesn't hold a lot of space for any sort of evolution or change in the person's experience of distress. What do you think? I I think further than that, it also doesn't hold a lot of respect for reality. Mm -hmm. and for the person's ability to take reality. And they might want X, but they might be Y. And sometimes it's it's more helpful and ambitious to try and accept being Y than to change yourself and try to be X. And it's like, do you change the body or do you change the mind? They're they're big questions. But I'm, I'm naturally going to kind of tend towards changing the mind because, of course, that's what I work in. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that's what I, I, I kind of like. But I do think it's very important that we give respect to people because sometimes I feel there's a patronizing edge to affirmative yes. therapy where they think the person in front of me can't deal with the fact that there's an, a reality and there's a, there's a desire. And they don't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily merge very well. In loads of different ways. You know, the amount of people who you meet who say, I'm, you know, I'm so mad when they're actually very, very not mad. Mm-hmm. I think that there's, there's so many examples of people not being what they assert themselves to be. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd be all for, like, we can cope with reality. We can, we can take it. We just need, sometimes we need help with it. And uh, I, I think that's, that's okay. I think, that's good enough. I, d- I don't think, I think people can bear a lot. I can mm-hmm. think they can endure a lot. And I think it's, it's, it frightens me that people are said, told, like I said, somewhere along the way, there was a reckoning with me where I realized people are humoring me. 
Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that is not a respectful way to be. And I feel sometimes there's a, there's a feel of that mm-hmm. among some people who are affirming. Mm-hmm. And that makes me very uncomfortable, I think. I do want to say about the gender dysphoria, the DSM, and if you want to go into the criteria, anybody who's listening, I would urge you to go and look up the kind of the, the criteria for the DSM, because you will see that for the, for the children to be diagnosed with childhood gender dysphoria, you need for six months to kind of tick the box out of something like six out of eight criteria. Mm-hmm. But five out of those eight are based upon stereotypical behavior, stereotypical clothes, stereotypical activities. So if you like boyish clothes, boyish activities, boyish, uh, boyish people, you, you therefore are fitting the criteria of gender dysphoria. And I think that needs to be raised and raised again and raised again, because stereotypes are really very regressive. And, you know, we really should have moved on. We're in the 21st century. We should have moved on so boys can run around with fairy wands and princess dresses and girls can play with trucks and not be categorized as something different to what they look like. Um, I I know I might sound a bit zealous here, but I I feel the freedom to be a kid is is something that we really need to protect. Right. Yeah, I, I really feel very strongly that the mm-hmm. children should be just free to be free without categories, just free ourselves from the categories. Mm-hmm. Because I think they're very aggressive and they make pe- people feel uncomfortable. But people are very drawn to them. Yeah, they, want they them. really are. People struggle, I think, with ambiguity. I mean, the irony is with, despite all of this, you know, acceptance of things like non-binary and gender fluid identities, at the end of the day, if we don't have a concrete label and definition, we really have a hard time with ambiguity. And I'm with you, Stella. I I think it's crucial for children to be able to be their whole selves and to follow their curiosity. You know, this is a concept I use a lot in my work. And I believe very much that if we have a curiosity or a spark that comes alive in us, we should be free to be interested in and pursue it. And I think when we have very rigid definitions of what girls are allowed to do and what boys are allowed to do, it deadens the individual child's freedom to pursue their own curiosities. And I think we should be able to hold a space for respecting your biological sex and at the same time, respecting your individual curiosities. I don't really understand why they seem to be placed at odds with one another when, in my view, they're completely congruent and it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. And it does feel um, that people want the categories, they want the rules. And I've really seen it actually with COVID, like so many people They want the rules and they want the very clear rules and the clear categories of what can we do and what tier are you in (laughs) and where are we going? And it's like we're not living, we're not existing well without the rules. And previously we had the rules rammed down our throat with various religions and society was so repressive. The rules were clear. Mm. And so we've kicked them all away and we are falling over ourselves looking Mm -hmm. for for more regression, more <laughs> regression. Please give me a category. Give me a rule. Mm-hmm. And it feels we're, our psyche is crying out for it. Yeah. You know, I have to say that there's there's this concept of choice fatigue that comes up to me oh, yeah. when I think about this. And when we have no boundaries whatsoever, we also can become overwhelmed with choices and fear of picking the wrong choice. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a little bit different from allowing yourself to pursue your interests or be curious about things. I think choice fatigue really comes up when we are asking young people or adults to select a category that they think will suit them at all points of time, forever and ever. Amen. You know, Mm. and how does that make sense for anybody? Um, That's why I, I, I just am inclined to hold on to the categories which are grounded in reality that are unshakable, like sex categories. And for things like gender expression and playing with clothing, I say let's open the doors for that. Yep. 
even names, play around with it all. Yeah. I do think we've lots more episodes to go. Yeah. I hope we gave good, good kind of beginning, because that's all you could do with this <laughs> massive subject with gender dysphoria and gender identity. I do think when you say the choice, the burden of choice, it weighs heavily. And I see it a lot with teenage clients. And I think our next episode is going to give a good kind of, hopefully, good exploration of ROGD, which is uh, often described by, was originally described by Lisa Littman as rapid onset gender dysphoria. Not a diagnosis, but certainly a description of a phenomenon that many people have seen. And uh, hopefully we'll give that a, a, a good exploration in the next episode. I think so. This was pretty fun. I feel like for yeah. our first episode, I enjoyed this conversation very much, Stella. I hope others did too. I, I do too. <laughs> All right, then I guess we will see everybody. Well, we will hear everybody in the next episode. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.